Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. And Dexter listened to Love Me Do. He wasn't terribly impressed. He didn't like the harmonica on it because he felt harmonica is a blues instrument, not a pop instrument. He didn't like it. He turned it down. No big deal. Look, it kills you know, me. The Beatles weren't popular you know, that much at the time. The guitar bands are going out, too. That, yeah, that was Decca's brilliant <laughs> remark. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and welcome to July. If you know anything about the show, you know that during July we do an extended series of shows that are all interviews. We did one last week, and we're doing another one this week. And i got to be honest with you, I can't believe I got today's guest to come in and speak with us. Today we're talking with Bruce Spizer, who is maybe the foremost scholar on the Beatles in the United States. Just to give you an example, if you don't know the name off the top of your head, he was the sole author of all the questions for the Beatles Trivial Pursuit Edition. And lucky for me, he lives down in New Orleans, about 45 minutes south of where I'm standing right now. He has multiple, multiple books, including the one that I bought so he would sign. And then what we're going to talk about today, The Beatles Are Coming, The Birth of Beatlemania in America. And once again, if you want to get his books, you can go to his website, which is beetle.net, singular, beetle.net, or look him up on Amazon. Bruce Spizer, S-P-I-Z-E-R. And what's really fun about it, the Beatles aren't his full-time job. I'm sure it takes up most of his time, but his full-time job is being a tax accountant. So, he's a tax man. You know, I forgot to ask him if I should declare the pennies on my eyes. But we're talking to Bruce Spizer today. Okay, how did I get him? Well, he was coming to my college town to give a lecture on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So I just simply wrote to him through his website and said, Bruce, you're coming to my town anyway. What do you say you come an hour and a half early, sit down with me, and then I'll go and buy you dinner? Done! which I did, and I got him over to his other presentation. So, for an hour today, maybe two, because we talked for a long time, I offer to you the foremost authority on the Beatles in the United States easily, Bruce Spizer on Rock School. Bruce Spizer, tell me I'm saying that correctly. You are pronouncing my name correctly. I tell people when they say Bruce Spitzer, I tell them the T is silent, and they go, but there is no T. And I go, that's why it's silent. There you go. Well done. Well done, Joe. Bruce Spizer is a Beatles expert of the nth degree and has been nice enough to come in here and speak with us. You'll find him on Beatle.com. Net. Let me ask you some questions. I have you for an hour, and we're under the gun because you need to get to another presentation. So I want to get right to it. All right. This is a question, and I want to talk mostly about the Beatlemania in America. But this is a question that anytime somebody tells me they're a monstrous Beatle fan, I want them to answer this simple question. 
why the Beatles? <laughs> so, no, I'm serious. Why not great... Dusty Springfield, zombies, no, yardbirds? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, um, when I first was exposed to the Beatles back in early 1964 on the Newman School Bus in New Orleans, Louisiana, hearing <laughs> I Want to Hold Your Hand, there was something fresh, exciting, and different about it. Mm-hmm. So what attracted me and my friends to the Beatles was the music was exciting. Uh, they We weren't in a global community in those days. They were from Liverpool all the way across the pond, as it were. Did you even know where that was? No, I knew it was no. in England, but I didn't know <laughs> where in England. And that was kind of cool. And they had, for the time, this radically long hair. Mm-hmm. The other thing I liked about them was they had their way of mocking authority and adults in doing it in a charming way so that we got that they were mocking the adults, but maybe the adults didn't. I kind of like that. Right. But what it boils down to is, look, all those things were reasons why I was attracted to the Beatles. But today, long hair? Nah. Right. Um, global co- fact that they're from Liverpool? Who cares? Yeah. Um, you know, so what it is is the answer, the music, plain and simple. Yeah. It really is that simple. You know, we wouldn't be talking about the Beatles 50, 55 years on or whatever if it wasn't for the music because all those cultural things don't mean anything to today's generation. But the music and the excitement and freshness of it still comes across today just as it did when you first heard it back in 1964 in America and 63 in Europe right. and 62 even. Do you think some of the popularity was just that they were smart enough to have the brains to come out in 63? Had they, had they been part of the second British invasion? The invasion was coming. But you think if they had been part of the second run with the kinks and such, they'd have been the Beatles? Or is it just that they were the first out of the gate? Well, being first out of the gate has an advantage. But, look, you could have gotten that excitement first out of the gate. The Dave Clark Five got tremendous excitement. And people were telling them, you know, these guys are better than the Beatles and they're going to replace the Beatles they even did a song called Catch Us If You Can, as if they were already ahead of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. In fact, they never were. The difference was that the Dave Clark Five stayed in 1964 or whatever, right. whereas the Beatles' music kept evolving. And I think because their music kept evolving, no matter when they hit, they still would have been the Beatles. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. Let me, just for people's uh, knowledge, and I found all these on Amazon, you are the author of so many (laughs) Beatles books. I'm just going to list two or three of them. Uh, The Beatles uh, records on VJ. And by the way, if you have time after the interview, up in my office, I collected every single Beatles 45 released in the United States, and I have them all framed in order. Oh, that'd be cool to see. I just kind of like to show that to you. You also have the Beatles on Apple Records, the Beatles solo on Apple Records, the Beatles swan song. And if anybody wants to find this, Spitzer, S-P-I-Z-E-R, and you'll find them all on Amazon.com. And, of Amazon. course, it's com. pronounced Spizer like you did at the beginning of this year. I really wish I hadn't done that. That's so. okay. It gives me something <laughs> to kid you about. The Beatles are coming. The birth of Beatlemania. And that's one of the reasons I started with that question. 
why the Beatles? Mm-hmm. It, it seems that every generation, and I hate to put Justin Bieber in the same discussion with the, the Beatles, but every generation seems to throw a hero up the pop chart. It, it seems like the Beatles just, and I mean, they were really throwing up the pop chart, holding the top five positions yeah. on <laughs> Billboard at one point in time. Tell me about the birth of Beatle mania, which is really, I guess, the story of the British invasion. Yeah, the the crazy thing about it is that you had the Beatles records had come out in America earlier Mm -hmm. in 1963 on the VJ label. Why were they on VJ? Well, Capitol Records was owned by EMI, Mm -hmm. and they had a right of first refusal for all EMI foreign product. Parlophone Records was owned by EMI in the U.K., Mm -hmm. and so the Beatles record for Parlophone, and George Martin does the Love Me Do uh, Capital turns it down. Capital had a guy named Dave Dexter who was head of A&R, Artist and Repertoire, Foreign Product. And Dexter listened to Love Me Do. He wasn't terribly impressed. He didn't like the harmonica on it because he felt harmonica's a blues instrument, not a pop instrument. He didn't like it. He turned it down. No big deal. <laughs> that Look, kills you know, me. The Beatles weren't popular you know, that much at the time. Well, guitar England. bands are going out, too. That, yeah, that was Decca's brilliant <laughs> remark. But, you know, so you had that. So George Martin records Please Please Me, and he's all excited. Bear in mind, for the listeners that don't realize this, there was never a British act that had sustained success in the U.S. The biggest hit, perhaps, that they ever had in the U.S. on the charts was a song called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands by 14-year-old Laurie London. Hmm. And that was a number, you know, that spiritual was a big hit. And then Telstar by the Tornadoes, an instrumental, got to number one on the charts. But these were just one-hit type things. And so George Martin thought the Beatles, you know, could do something more in America. And he was all excited that Please Please Me would be released by the Mighty Capital label. And Dave Dexter listened to Please Please Me. What does it have at the beginning of the song? Harmonica. Right. And an A&R guy, if he gets past 30 seconds in a song, that's a lot when you're just seeing if you like something or not. Yeah. And so he turns it down. Atlantic Records turns it down. It's not authentic R&B or whatever, and a few other labels. And there's a guy named Paul Marshall, an attorney. I'm an attorney. It's always an attorney. Mm-hmm. A guy in New York, and he represents EMI in the States in a company called Transglobal, and he represents VJ Records as well. And VJ, after Capital turned down a guy named Frank Ifield, uh, Capital turns it down, and VJ puts out his record, I Remember You, and it gets to number five on the charts. Mm-hmm. And so Paul Marshall thinks, well, maybe VJ could do something with the Beatles. Nobody else wants them. And so VJ agrees to put out Please Please Me, and it comes out, and this is really cool, February 7, 1963, exactly one year before the Beatles invade America. Right. And the record, for the most part, is ignored. Was that planned, do you think? Nah. Oh, come on. Can't be planned. (laughs) Can't be planned. Not possible. So VJ puts the record out, and VJ's in Chicago, and Dick Biondi, who's a disc jockey in Chicago, becomes, we believe, the first disc jockey in the United States to play the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And he plays Please Please Me probably around February 14, 
We know he played it as early as I think it was February 21st or 2nd because that's actually an air check tape of his show. Yeah. And in it, he's playing all the latest hits, you know, like Mecca by Gene Pitney and a Steve Lawrence song, Don't Be Afraid, Little Darling. And then he goes, here are the Beatles with Please, Please Me. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he's excited about the song. And the song yeah, makes a charge. It makes top 40 in Chicago. It doesn't do anything nationally, but in doing additional research a few years back, I found out that the record did chart in other markets, such as San Bernardino mm-hmm. and Houston, Texas, in Miami. Not big hits, but it charted in those places. Right. People knew the names. Yeah. You know, so the Beatles were getting a little bit of airplay, but not a lot. So the next Beatles record comes out from me to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you may read in books and hear people, even people like George Martin say, Capital turned down from me to you. That's not true. Here's why. Paul Marshall, when he was representing VJ and representing EMI, had to represent both parties. And so what he did was he put a rider in a leasing agreement. The leasing agreement was for Please Please Me and Ask Me Why. Mm -hmm. It was a five-year licensing agreement. And it also had a rider in it giving VJ the right of first refusal for all Beatles product released by EMI during the term of the contract. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Sergeant Pepper could have been on VJ. Right. But as it was... Who owned VJ? VJ was owned by uh, the V, Vivian, uh-huh. and J, James Bracken. Yes. Mm-hmm. They were married, and they were the key players in VJ. She, uh, and they the, weren't a big player. No, they were a very small, independent yeah. gospel and R&B label out of Chicago. Right. She got her start in recording gospel artists and then branched out to R&B. And uh, they, did, they had some crossover action with you know, Raindrops by D. Clark and Duke of Earl. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason... Um, Wait, the famous Duke. Duke oh, that, that Duke, was on VJ. Yeah. Was it really? Yeah, absolutely. How about that? Big crossover. And VJ was kind of smart because they were thinking, you know, we put out black records by black people. Yeah. Black people bought them. Yeah. And then we put out records by black artists and white people bought them. Hey, hot dog. <laughs> and what if we put out records by white people? I bet white people would buy them too. Uh-huh. And so they had a group that Capital turned down of four guys, all singers, the Four Seasons. No. And so VJ put out Sherry by the Four Seasons. It was a big number one smash. Sure. And so VJ was making some progress. So they get the Beatles, and they put out Please Please Me. They don't know how to market it in their advertisement. It says, uh, number one in England, going great, R&B, country, western, and pop. And that was an ad in Billboard. I'm trying to find the R&B. I'm, I guess so. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Acoustic you know, guitar. And harmonies yeah. are country western, I, I guess. guess I guess. Right. Sure. But they didn't really know what they had. And the other fun thing was that the group's name was misspelled on the label with two T's. Oh, no. <laughs> and if you have a copy of that label or that record and it's in near mint condition, you're yeah. looking at 5000 bucks. Wow. Yeah. So the next record comes out, From Me to You. And the problem that they encounter with From Me to You is Del Shannon records a cover version of From Me to You because he was on the same bill as the Beatles at the Royal Albert Hall in London Mm -hmm. and heard the Beatles do From Me to You and decided he would record it and put it out in the States as a favor to the Beatles. 
John was excited for a few seconds until he realized disc jockeys in the U.S. know who Del Shannon is. Why? <laughs> because in 1961, Del Shannon had a runaway hit called... Little Runaway. There you yeah, go. She's a little runaway. So for that reason, you're in a situation where... The Del Shannon record gets more airplay in the U.S. than the Beatles version. Oh, no. And the Del Shannon one charts in Billboard, and in Cashbox it has, you know, From Me to You, and then in big print, you know, Del Shannon, and then in small print below that, The Beatles. So it actually does make the charts as a secondary hit, because Cashbox would record, yeah. would chart songs and then list a different artist. Yeah, but it's a, it's a hit. But it's an income hit. It's yeah, not a it's, let it's everybody a, know about it. It's not a big us. thing. Right. You know, and if you're a disc jockey and you've got From Me to You by the Beatles and From Me to You by Del Shannon and you don't know that John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who wrote the song, are in the Beatles, you're going to play the Del Shannon version. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. And that's what happens. But it does, it does about 20,000 units because it actually, once again, does well on the West Coast in San Bernardino. And so, <clears throat> you know, it does enough action to... Do some sales. Mm -hmm. We need to take our first break here on the Rock School Radio Show, give our affiliates a little bit of time for their commercials, but we'll be back and talk with Bruce Spizer more about the Beatles and Beatlemania, and it's entirely possible you'll get to hear the Del Shannon version of With Love From Me To You. Back in a minute here on Rock School. So, VJ in the summer of 63, actually before the summer of 63, got the master tape for the Beatles' first LP, Please Please Me. Right. And they were going to put out that album that summer. And they were going to call it Introducing the Beatles because Please Please Me had flopped. And they didn't want to yeah. put 14 songs on the record, only 12. But it, at that point in time, were 45s the thing or oh, were albums really 45s the pitch? were dominant I absolutely was say, dominant format why are they putting out an album at all because vj felt they might be able to sell 5 or 6000 copies and they actually printed cover slicks they didn't yeah. manufacture the covers but the front cover slicks 6000 of them mm -hmm. now to give you an idea to put it in comparison to something else another album that they did 6000 cover slicks for but didn't print was called canter joe vagoda and an introductory to Hebrew music. Oh, I, so, I was humming that on the way in. There you go. I was. So kind of a vanity <laughs> album put out on Hebrew music. And the, why, why was Joe Gavoda, why was he getting this? I'll get his name pronounced one of these years. Yeah. Uh, because um, his son was a lawyer for VJ. So oh, it was a vanity project. There you go. But the fun thing about this is, uh, well, not fun. It was a sad thing about this, actually. The album doesn't come out that summer. No records are released by VJ that summer because VJ runs out of money. Mm. Why? Because their president, Ewart Abner, had a gambling problem. And he took yeah. company money to pay off his gambling debts. Yeah. So what happens is EMI sends a telegram to VJ and basically says, you haven't been paying us royalties on the Beatles and Frank Ifield, so cease putting those records out. And so VJ in effect, has a unilateral termination of their contract. Now, if VJ had handled the legal things correctly down the road, they could have ended up, I think, keeping the Beatles. 
but their attorney made a big blunder. We don't probably have time to get into that. But who owns them now? Well, VJ's been out of business for a long time. They went they went bankrupt in '66. Right, but in '66, when they were told cease and desist, they were told in August of '63. Uh, they were told cease. Okay, '63. Okay, who owns the Beatles? Are they just well, floating in the well, ether? Well, the Beatles are floating in the air, and Capital can sign them. And so Dave Dexter is told by EMI, the Beatles and Frank Ifield are available again. <laughs> Dave Dexter listens to a little tune by Frank Ifield called I'm Confessing That I Love You, and he listens to She Loves You by the Beatles. And he decides that one of these is going to be a big hit, and one's not going to be suitable for the American market. And he takes out a full-page ad and billboard for the next big thing, Frank Ifield. No. And turns down She Loves You. <laughs> she Loves You ends up on Swan. Why Swan? Well, yeah. the owner of Swan had traveled to England working deals with EMI to lease some singles by Freddie Cannon, mm-hmm. such as Way Down Yonder in New Orleans, Palisades right. Park. Know it. So for that reason, we're in a situation where Swan gets the Beatles, but EMI limits that agreement to where it's for the single She Loves You, I'll Get You Only, and it only can be released in single format. It's a two-year deal for those two songs in the singles format, and Swan gets a right of first refusal for the next Beatles single if She Loves You sells 50,000 copies. They put it out in September, yeah. and it sells maybe 50 copies. Doesn't do well at all. Right. And so, as Paul McCartney famously says, in America, you know, please, please me, flop for me to you, flop. She Loves You, flop. Yeah. And so the Beatles are not doing anything in America the introducing the Beatles album didn't come out that summer because they didn't have any money. So now we're moving around to November. Is there a story, and, and I may cut this out if mm-hmm. I'm wrong, but I come, I'm almost positive I've heard a story about somebody at Swan Records had to sell 50 grand. I've heard the story that somebody made the statement, had I known, I'd have taken out a bank loan well, they, just gone it wasn't $50,000. It was 50,000 <laughs> copies of the record. Right. Of course, and you know. <laughs> But who knew? next single is I Want to Hold Your Hand. And Dave Dexter, who's already turned down Love Me Do, mm-hmm. Please Please Me and She Loves You, listens to I Want to Hold Your Hand, and he initially turns that down too. At which wow. point in time, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, does what anyone would do when you're fed up with a company. Yeah. Call the president. So he calls up Alan Livingston, and Alan had been getting some pressure, I'm sure, from EMI. Why don't you put out the Beatles? And he would ask Dexter about it, and Dexter would say, Alan, forget it. They're a bunch of long-haired kids. They're nothing. So anyway, um, Brian calls him up, and he says, I'm the personal manager of the Beatles, and Mr. Livingston, why won't Capital put out our records? 
And he says, well, quite frankly, I've never listened to them. And Brian says, well, would you listen to him? So Alan Livingston goes down, sees Dexter, gives a listen to, I want to hold your hand. And he hears something. Yeah. And he calls Brian back up and says, we'll put it out. And Brian pulls a, a maneuver on him. He really can't do this, but he says, says it like he can. Well, we're not going to let you put out this Beatles single unless you spend $40,000 promoting it. Well, on, you're right. On what leg does he stand? None to whatsoever. Tell to sp- or to tell Nonetheless, to Alan Livingston says, fine, we'll do it. And, of course, they have trouble spending 40000 on it, but they do. And why this is significant is because Capital has obligated themselves to make a big promotion of this single, mm-hmm. they now have to get creative. I know this is going to sound silly, but back in the 60s, the way you marketed music was you marketed it to record distributed companies and radio stations and record stores. Mm -hmm. And the thinking was if the radio played the record and kids heard it and could go to a record store and buy it because the distributors stocked it and sent it to record stores, they had done their job. Mm -hmm. There was no direct marketing to the purchasers of records. Let me repeat that. No (laughs) direct marketing to the purchasers of records. Capital comes up with what they call the, um, you know, the, the idea of this beautiful campaign the Beatles campaign. The British are coming. The Beatles are coming. Right. And they show the Capitol logo sitting under a head of hair, long hair like the Beatles. Oh, I've seen that. Yes. Now that you say it, yes. I know I've seen that. And they have these stickers printed up, the Beatles are coming, once again with the long hair. Right. And they have kids stick these everywhere in their locker rooms at school on stop signs, just like it used to be Kilroy was here. Now right. it's the Beatles are coming. And they do these big things. So now they're marketing to the kids themselves who are going to be the ones buying the music anyway. So they their plan is that I Want to Hold Your Hand is going to come out on January 13th. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we're already in late November and there's a rule in the record business, thou shalt release no new product after Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. And that's what they're going to stick by. <laughs> Who started Beatlemania in America? I'm glad you asked me that, Joe. I, 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 would you like me to formally do it? Why don't you do that? Uh, Bruce, who started Beatlemania in America? It was actually jump-started, and I kid you not, uh-huh. by Walter Cronkite, a 15-year-old girl in Silver Springs, Maryland. Oh, I've heard And this. a disc jockey in Washington, D.C. Yes, What I've happens is Walter Cronkite is the anchor in the head of the news department at CBS. Yeah. And they have a story that their London Bureau sends them the week of about November yeah. 20, 20th or whatever. Hey, man, something's happening here. And anyway, yeah. so they get this story, and they run this story on the Beatles on the morning news with Mike Wallace. Five-minute mm-hmm. story on the Beatles. And it's going to run that evening on the CBS Evening News, but it doesn't. Because the day is November 22nd, 1963. I can tell you In what a happened. few hours after mm-hmm. this story ran, what happens? Well, it was the death of President Kennedy. President Kennedy is assassinated. Yes. And, of course, all coverage is on that, and the story doesn't run. Well, 
it's a really dark time. The president's been assassinated. There is civil rights unrest. There is trouble with Turkey and Cyprus. We're in the Cold War with Russia. We've had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Walter Cronkite, for whatever reason, on December 10th, thinks, you know, let's run that story on the Beatles at the end of the show. Why not? Wait a minute. Walter Cronkite said it? Yeah. So on the CBS Evening (laughs) News with Walter Cronkite, he (laughs) runs the story on the Beatles. Something light to end the news. Sure. Now, what's interesting is there's a gentleman called Ed Sullivan who has the largest variety show in America. And he has booked the Beatles, an unknown act in America, on November 12th, he books them to be on his show in February. Mm-hmm. Now, he probably doesn't give it a second thought. He knows it's a big gamble. Nobody knows who the Beatles are in America. Imagine his excitement watching the CBS Evening News when Walter Cronkite ends his broadcast with a five-minute story on the Beatles. <laughs> right. So he calls up Mr. Cronkite all excited. Walter, what can you tell me about those bugs or whatever they call themselves? <laughs> and then he, So CBS starts promoting that very next day. The Beatles are going to be on the Ed Sullivan Show in February. Extraordinary to promote it that early. Right. There is a girl named Marsha Albert who lives in Silver Springs, Maryland, 15 years old. She sees the story, and we didn't have email in those days. She actually writes a letter to her local DJ right out of Chuck Berry's rollover Beethoven (laughs) saying she saw this group on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite called the Beatles. Why can't we have music like that in America? Enter Carol James, disc jockey mm-hmm. at WDC. WWD, WWDC's <laughs> Carol James. Right. He has a friend who is what we called stewardesses in those days mm-hmm. with BOAC, as in flew in from Miami Beach BOAC. British Overseas Airways Corporation. Corporation. Okay. Right. Which I'd merged which merged <laughs> with BEA to become British Airways. There you go. So anyway, he asks his friend of his Hey, what about the Beatles? They seem to be big in England. Yes, they are. Could you bring me their latest record? So she brings him a copy of I Want to Hold Your Hand. On December 17th, he invites Marsha Albert down to the studio and lets her introduce it. And she does. And they save the tape. It's very cute. And the song gets played. And afterwards, he says, listeners, let us know what you think. And the switchboard lights up like a Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. And so the next thing you know, the record's getting heavy rotation. And he dubs a copy of it, sends it to a friend that he has who's a DJ in Chicago, and it gets to St. Louis. And Capital has three markets that are playing a record that's not coming out until January 13th. So what does Capital do? Uh, they yet. have that lawyer <laughs> contact WWDC and say, quit playing that record or we'll sue. And Carol James says, are you nuts? It's a hit. So Capital says, you know, he's right. And so what they do is they essentially tell their employees at the pressing plants, you're going to be busy pressing copies of that record over the Christmas holiday. Mm-hmm. And on December 26th, the record goes on sale. Now, why is this significant? Kids are out of school. Mm-hmm. What do they do? They're on their iPhones and playing video games. Right, wrong. It had not no. been invented yet. Right. They listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. And WMCA in New York plays the song immediately. And WABC jumps on it. And WINS jumps on it. And all three major pop stations in New York are playing this song. In, within a week, it's number one in New York, and the rest of the nation follows. We'll get back to speaking with Bruce Spizer, easily the foremost authority on the Beatles here in the United States, but we have to take a break. Back in a minute, here on Rock School.
So when the Beatles appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, they're getting saturation radio airplay, not just of I Want to Hold Your Hand, but VJ re-releases Please Please Me, and it starts moving up the charts. Swan re-releases She Loves You, it starts moving up the charts. Yeah. Capital, that was going to put out their album Meet the Beatles in February, decides we're going to put it up January 20th. VJ says, hey, we have a Beatles album. Let's press it and put it out. They put it out on the 10th. Capital sues VJ. VJ <laughs> sues Capital. Capital has better lawyers. So Meet the Beatles is in stores, introducing the Beatles by VJs, not so much. But the point is, by the time the Beatles are on the Ed Sullivan Show, a lot of people mistakenly say, Beatlemania began in America with the Ed Sullivan Show. Wrong. 83 million people would not have tuned in to watch the Ed Sullivan Show, which normally drew 25 to 30 million unless Beatlemania had already struck America. Huh. And so that's a key thing to remember. So the key thing of Marsha Albert, Walter Cronkite, and this DJ, if Capitol puts out the record in the middle of January, kids aren't home from school, it, it probably works its way. It might be a top 10 hit yeah. by the time they're on the Ed Sullivan Show. But you wouldn't have had 73 you know, million people tuning right. in. in America on February 7, right. 1964, one year to the day when Please Please Me came out. Right. It's such a big event that it's covered on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And there's footage of them coming off the plane and waving in the press conference and the whole bit. Oh, that, that famous scene of McCartney coming off and, you know, yeah. the hand up yeah. in the air and the huge smile. Yeah. Oh, and in yeah. that, that freshly dressed Pan Am stewardess who wasn't tired from that transatlantic <laughs> flight. Do you know why she wasn't tired? I apparently She not. wasn't on that plane. Oh, When the plane <laughs> landed, she was called a greeter. And she walked up the steps because they weren't jetways in those days. Right. Got on the plane and then walked off the plane with the Beatles. So that's why she looks so nice and fresh. Perfectly quaffed. That's right. Perfectly quaffed. Now, here's something I find interesting. On their first... Uh, show on the uh, on the Ed Sullivan show, yes. you know, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Yes, real quick intro yeah. on it. I I I don't know why, but for the longest time, I was of the opinion, I want to hold your hand is what they sang. Now nah, they no. what they did, they opened up with uh, all my loving, and then after that, it was good marketing on their part. Let's do a song that even mom and dad can love. Till there was you right. from the Music Man. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad will love that, but let's make sure people know what we're really about. Boom, she loves you. And they do those three songs. Boom, boom, boom. When they're done, and you can't make this stuff up. Do you know what the commercial was? I, I should probably be able to figure it out. It was for Anison Headache Relief. <laughs> and for the adults, that oh, was probably the case. Because the kids were brilliant. screaming and everything. I mean, the, everyone in the theater screaming away. Then they came back and did... I want to hold your hand, and I saw her standing there. Yeah. And then they were followed by an ap- acrobatic app called the Five Phase, hmm. uh, just to have everyone calm down. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Close your eyes and 
Thus ends part one. You've been listening to a conversation between myself and Bruce Spicer, easily the foremost authority on the Beatles here in the United States. Now, we spoke for at least another half an hour. So what I'm going to do is, well, we've got the Beatles here. They've been on Ed Sullivan. And then we just discussed basic Beatle trivia and got a lot of his opinions. And that will be next week's show. Bruce Spicer, once again, next week, part two on the way. But that wraps it up for today. Thanks for listening. Class is dismissed. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. There were birds in the sky. But I never saw them winging No, I never saw them at all Till there was you